There are just two northern white rhinos left in the world. There used to be tons of these beautiful rhinos across Central Africa, but staggering rates of illegal hunting for its horn have led to its almost certain extinction in the wild. The rise of conservation tourism, or safaris, is one way that tourists can support species that are going extinct. But how effective is conservation tourism? And what role do we play as tourists in protecting species like the northern white rhinos? Today on Alpaca My Bags, we're exploring these questions and learning about conservation and responsible tourism with James Mwenda. For almost a decade, James was a caretaker for the last northern white rhinos at the Old Pajeta Conservancy, where the remaining two rhinos, Najin and Fatu, continue to live under constant protection from poachers. I've been a ranger for the last nearly 10 years, and now I'm a businessman and a conservationist, I, I can say. Now, James has started his own expedition company to show travelers to Kenya the things he loves most about his country. But before we get into the episode, I wanted to ask you, Katie, about this video you said that you wanted to show me. You messaged me and you said, I saw this video and I want to hear your thoughts on it. So yeah, I wanted to do a blind react and wanted to A, get your <laughs> thoughts on it and B, it reminded me of something that happened with us recently. So it's a TikTok. I'll just play it for you. I'm going to play it up to the mic so you can listen to it. I'm here in Mexico, in the ocean, and there is people trying to sell you things on the beach. And I was having a conversation with them, and they're asking questions. I'm traveling solo as a woman, and they're like, oh, are you staying at this resort or in the city? And I was like, here. And they're like, oh, how long are you going to be here for? I was like, a minute. Boyfriend, and I was like, my boyfriend gets here in the morning. <laughs> like, oh, what time? I went mm, three a.m. Yeah, it's like Oh, you should come like out here tonight. And smoke. They asked me to hang out with them tonight before my boyfriend gets here, and I was like, oh, not like he wouldn't care. Like, what do you mean he's gonna be here really quickly? And <laughs> what the fuck? It's fine, but that's just shit we have to deal with as women. So there you go. This woman is floating in the ocean by herself, swimming. She's traveling by herself. And then these dudes that are selling stuff on the beach were like, hey, like, were you, are you staying here? Like, do you want to hang out with us? Being like kind of creepy to this solo woman traveler. And you know what it reminded me of, Erin? She's giving them very vague answers about how long she's staying, where she is, blah, blah, blah. It reminded me of the time you and I went camping to that nudist campground and there was this guy in like a convertible like mustang driving around the park and he kept he said hi to us but he said hi to us in like some weird ways and there was this one particular moment where Aaron and I are driving out of the campground to go get food and he's driving in so he kind of passes us but it was only a one car road so we had to let the one person drive in and then the other person could go and he kind of stopped like right in front of our car so we couldn't really get past him we had to like wait for him to go and he was like hey did you girls find a camping spot like whereabouts are you camping and I like quick off the top of my head was like man I don't even know somewhere around here this place is so big we found a place for our our tent but I couldn't even tell you where it is and you looked at me after and you were like that was good like good call on that. 
So thoughts, concerns, I need to hear what you think. My first thought is just like, it's unbelievably wild to me how long you can have a conversation with a man and have them not read how uncomfortable you are. Because I have had conversations, especially when I'm traveling with people where I have given really weird answers like that, like, oh, I'm staying in a hotel down the road where I'm giving consistent, indirect answers. And I feel like if I was the the man in that conversation, I would easily read that this person didn't want to give me the information or be talking to me. It's just so wild how long you can go on talking to someone and just completely overlook the fact that they're uncomfortable with the conversation. And that's what happened with this guy in this campground because we ran into him multiple times. And every time I felt it was very obvious that we didn't really want to talk to him and we wanted to just like carry on with our day. And he would just like keep us there. It was just weird vibes. It was. And the amount of times in my life that I've had conversations like that, and this isn't just like commentary on women's experience traveling. I think this is like a pretty universal experience for women, like regardless of where they are. But yeah, I mean, I have had those experiences traveling. Definitely. There's been like many times, especially when I traveled solo, where I have like actively had to either lie or evade um, when giving answers to questions coming from men, just like inappropriate questions. Yeah. And it brings me back to that first episode that we did with Bella Black, aka my friend Gabby. And we were talking about all of the different ways that women will try and like prevent male attention, unwanted male attention, like the fake wedding ring thing and how pissed off she got. She's like, I don't want to wear a wedding ring just to like make a man respect me. Like, what the heck? It's so funny to me that you can give off all this body language and vague answers and it still won't be obvious that somebody that person does not want to give you this information or feels unsafe or feels uncomfortable like it is so wild to me so like it's wild to me but it's also just so such an example of like how privileged men are to be able to overlook that because maybe they do read the discomfort they just don't care about it. And that is definitely the sense I've gotten sometimes. Not to generalize, but I've definitely gotten that sense before from men. I mean, it's obvious in the statements that you get where somebody's like, oh, but where's your boyfriend at? That's an obvious example of like, well, I know you're uncomfortable, but I don't care. Yeah, it's a bit of a power dynamic. It's them saying like, oh, that doesn't matter to me. And I just want to get to the bottom of what I want to know about you. It's power and control, like, at the core. Like, I think it's such a microaggression, though, that it's really hard to, like, pin it down as that. And then the, but the flip side of it, and, like, this is speaking to my experience, like, as a woman, it's exhausting. Like, it is labor to have to constantly think about this stuff and think about what answers and information you're giving people. And at home, I find it easier to live with that labor. And, like, the amount of times I have to go through it is less. But when I'm traveling, I do it a lot more and it's exhausting. Not to mention the dynamic of figuring out like how much do you reveal? How much did you already reveal by accident? And like trying to navigate all of that when you're in the conversation that's happening right in front of you. And when you're traveling solo, I don't know how you do it. I don't. Here's what I've learned traveling solo. 
is that, and for context, I started traveling alone when I was 19. And the person I was, uh, like the solo traveler I was at 19 is very different from the solo traveler I am now. I do still solo travel sometimes, like even though I'm 31, because it's fun. But you learn a lot along the way. And I think back to experiences I had when I was 19, in which I did give too much information because I trusted people. I think at that age, my (laughs) faith in humanity wasn't quite gone yet. (laughs) So there were instances where I decided, like I felt that I could trust someone and I gave too much information. And I think like the further I got into solo traveling and the older I got, the more I realized that like, as much as you want to trust a person, especially when you're alone in a foreign country, you you just shouldn't. The only person you can trust really, like when you're traveling as a solo woman is yourself. Like the biggest advice I would have is like, just don't have a zero trust policy, truly. All right. Well, I mean, I'm glad we unpacked that video. I know I had to share it with you. So should we get into the actual content of this episode now? Yeah, let's do it. My journey to conservation started since when I was a little boy. We had a lot of conflict with elephants, what, what we call human wildlife conflict. And elephants were coming from the forest to our village and they would come and eat everything that was in the farm. When I was seven years, I remember we had done all the tilling, we had planted, the crops were done so well. And, and overnight, elephants came and they ate everything that was in the farm, completely everything. So at the end of seven years, I could see the struggle the the community was having with elephants. They would come with metals, bang it to scare the elephants. Some would um, even think of using poison arrows. Some would try to dig trenches to trap the elephants. It was so chaotic. And as as a little curious boy, I was was very keen to know what was going around the village. What happened mostly is we had uh, rangers from what you call the Kenya Wildlife Service come and they would scare away the elephants back to the forest. So I really admired that. Like uh, at that time, I don't know whether I was so young to start thinking that, but I could realize that elephants were just animals. They had no much understanding. They would just come and someone needed to do something. So at the age of seven, I would ask my mom what needs to be done. And I admired them to be a ranger. If that would be able to, I would come and live in the village and help solve the problem. That's when my conservation dream was born. Fast forward, so to say, um, the government came and fenced off uh, our area where the elephants were causing the the, the conflict with the community. And now, as we speak, since 2014, uh, the problem has been solved. And I ended up working in Opejita Conservancy, uh, which is a, a conservancy doing so well in Kenya. It was in pursuit of that dream. I continued now working with all Pegeta, and especially when I was given the role to look after the last Northern White Rhinos, which I've been doing for the last few years. You've sort of motioned to this a little bit in what you were just explaining about the clashes um, between the elephants and your village, but you mentioned in one of your videos that I saw on YouTube that one of the reasons you became a conservationist was that you realized there needed to be people who could act as a bridge between wildlife and people. Is that what you would say conservation work is at its core? 
or what would you say being a conservationist means? Yeah, definitely um, going back to that desire, I was trying to bridge the problem that was affecting my community. I was trying to see if there's uh, an aspect where elephants would live comfortably and the community will live comfortably. And that is the bridge I wanted to be for my community. Until now, when, when, when the government came and fenced off, I would say this is where it matters the most, especially community engagements. Uh, conservation is all about people. It's about species. It's about the flora and fauna that we have. And it is not something that we just approach in a narrow-mindedness. It's something we look in its vastness because it's so diverse. And especially when we're talking about poaching and other aspects, it has more to do with people than it has to do with animals. In this case, it is we the people who need to have the understanding. It is we the people who are destroying the environment. It is we the people that are causing all the harm that we see on the environment. So much of the conversations should be about people, should be about how do we educate ourselves, how do we approach, how do we live harmoniously even with other beings. So you mentioned you spent several years as a caretaker for the world's last remaining northern white rhinos. I believe now there are two left. And while you worked as a caretaker, you developed a special bond with um, one of them named Sudan. Could you tell us about that bond and what Sudan was like and what lessons you learned through your relationship with him? Yeah, just so to confirm, we have two female northern white rhinos left. The older one is called Najin. And if you follow me, you see the other one is called Fatu. I've always been seeing she's been my girlfriend for uh, <laughs> the years that I've been working there. Uh, she's so sweet. <laughs> she's the first rhino I worked with. So she qualified to be my girlfriend uh-huh. when I was working there. <laughs> my role at some point was to look after Sudan, uh, who was the last male known Northern White China to exist. It's a job that took a toll on me, especially... At my age, you know, we have been reading of extinction in the books. Uh, it happened to species, the dinosaurs and millions of other species. But then being charged with the responsibility of looking at what we have labeled as the last of our species was so much weight and so much lessons that I learned. I would say it was the emblem of extinction. It represented the real problem that is affecting our planet, Eve. Sudan, he was the last male northern white rhino. This meant there is a serious problem that we need to fix. Waking up every day, watching after him, making sure he is safe, he's protected, he's eaten well, wasn't just a career to me. I I took it so personally. I took responsibility for what had made him to be the last of his kind. First and foremost, I tried to offset that through activism and shouting on my social medias and everything, any opportunity that I could to help people realize that he was the last male Northern White Rhino and facing people every day who come, who came to see him uh, for the gram, you know, for, hey, I saw the last Northern White Rhino, he's a male. He's, I, I tried to change that into, this is so tragic to have the last of a species. So, so many lessons that he taught me, so many lessons that he has taught the world because he became a global ambassador about uh, species extinction. What I've learned the most is that we have the will and we have the power and we really can change the tide of so many other species that are threatened with extinction 
by doing our level best. And when we talk about other species, we are not talking about animals alone. We're talking about plants and trees and, and even smaller insects like the bees that we so much need to live and survive as humans. So I think he has sparked a global conversation that we all should be having about how well can we improve our environment. We can do better and we can revert some of, of, of the impeding climatic chaos that are awaiting us by just uh, readjusting and analyzing how we live on an everyday basis. I like honestly I watched I watched a whole bunch of your videos on YouTube and I just felt emotionally drained just watching those and seeing these like beautiful creatures and knowing that like they may not exist in the future is really hard to wrap your head around and I think especially for people like we're based in Canada and we're so far away from these species it sometimes it just feels like such a far away problem that I think a lot of people in North America feel sort of disassociated from from conservation in general but in one of your videos you actually mentioned that there is a bit of hope um, for the last two remaining white rhinos because of IVF. Um, you mentioned that science might be able to save the species. I was hoping you could explain a little bit about how IVF might be able to do that. Yeah, I think um, we have to agree that science has been able to help in various instances to solve some of the world's pressing issues. And the, the fate of the northern white rhinos is not exceptional. Scientists have been working around the clock to make sure they, they are able to revert the extinction, the near extinction of these northern white rhinos. Uh, luckily, before the mules died out, we had collected some semen, stored it, in, and, and over the period of, the, of time, over the last few years, uh, for the very first time, scientists have invented a technology where they could uh, they can collect eggs from from the two females, and in the lab mix these inseminate the eggs with the semen from the males and create embryos, and these embryos will be put into southern white rhinos. And just to put into perspective, we have two subspecies of white rhinos: we have the northern white rhinos and we have the southern white rhinos. And so the southern white rhinos can comfortably carry the pregnancy on behalf of the northern white rhinos because the two females we have have challenges for them to carry the pregnancy by themselves. And especially the fact that gestation period of rhinos is so long, is around 16, 16 and a half months, may give birth to a calf at around 40 kilograms of birth. So Najin is not in a better position to carry a pregnancy to term. Yeah, creating as, as many embryos as possible and then having as many surrogate moms carry the pregnancy on behalf of the northern white rhinos. So as we speak, uh, so much progress has been made. We have created embryos, I think now to the tune of 12. Maybe in the next year or few years, we will have a, a baby northern white rhinos. So, so much progress has been made in that respect. And um, so that's where the hope lies. I'm really hopeful too. It sounds like we have a good shot at it. When you talk about protecting endangered species, you emphasize that we have a collective responsibility to save the ones that are on the brink of extinction. Like I was mentioning before, I think a lot of people, especially those of us who live far away from these species, um, it's just hard to imagine that there's any way that we can contribute to supporting them from so far away. 
do you have suggestions for ways that people um, like like someone like me, for example, who isn't a conservationist, um, can contribute to this collective responsibility? I think that's a very brilliant question because I think, as you're saying, someone from Canada, someone from Europe, America, whatever parts of the world might feel that, um, might not feel that affinity. But it's really great, you know, it's good we put into context that we are in this universe together. And what is happening to rhinos in Africa will, in one way or the other, affect what is happening to Europe or North America or Canada or any other country. What is happening in Amazon will affect me in Africa. And especially when we are talking about the environment and climate. We are going to sail in this together. And the moment we see that, uh, especially when you're talking about key species like rhinos, elephants, and tigers, and, 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 and lions, that ensure the well-being of ecosystems because the motivation to protect species like rhinos gives a hope to entire ecosystems. The motivation to protect a single rhino, we are talking about between 6 to 10 square kilometers of space that they need to live comfortable life. So the moment we are trying to protect them in the natural environment, we are giving hope to millions of other species. In this collective aspect helps in, in making sure we have healthy ecosystems that are able to, to live well and continue providing for us. And, and then think about it. Think about the trafficking, the, the instability that is brought about by poaching. The whole syndicate affects a lot of other people. So I think it is time we see that it's, it's a global problem. It's, it's, it's for us to bring our hands together and, and support one another, support the Amazon, support uh, conservation initiatives, not only in Africa, but any other place around the world. Because we are not talking about, I wouldn't want to be so biased and talk about the rhinos alone. I would want someone waking up today in Canada Think about your immediate environment. Think about the species that are going to extinct in your doorstep. Think about the bees that you need to give a simple sugar solution outside your house because they give you 70% of what is in your plate on a single day, on an everyday basis. It's when we start realizing our roles in different aspects, then we start realizing where we can focus our energy, our support, because someone can be able to record an amazing podcast, someone can and educate others, someone can be activist, someone else can write about what is happening to our planet, someone else has monetary ability can support conservation initiatives. So there's so many areas that we are all needed, where we all need to bring our minds, our resources, our expertise and our energy together. And this is a question sometimes I always want to leave open to someone because we have different strengths and different abilities that we can use to combat what is happening to our planet. We have different levels of understanding, different knowledge and different understandings. Conservationists cannot assume the role of fixing the problems that are affecting the planet. It is a cumbersome responsibility to say that certain individuals are the ones who should take care of the planet. Someone waking up and putting a tie in the morning and going to an office should feel entitled to look at the well-being of the planet as it is with someone who lives in the bush like I've been living. And this is where now we can be able to realize where can I channel my support. Yeah. And I think like nowadays, especially I'm noticing in North America, um, weather has been changing a lot and that's resulting in more people talking about 
climate issues. And I think like a lot of people don't don't see the connection between conservation and climate. And there is a very important connection there, wherein these two issues are, they're intertangled. And so to care about climate is to also care about species and conservation. And so it's part of this like bigger picture that we all need to think about, because it does directly impact literally every person on the planet. Absolutely. And I agree with you, because um, at this point where we are heading to, nature will destroy anything we try to build if we don't realize that protecting our natural world, mostly the way it is, is the way to go forward. And so conservation is not just a career for a few people. It is a conversation for all of us to join ants. And it is so sad to walk through the walk of life without giving back to the same planet that feeds you on an everyday, that provides you the ground of a good life. It is time we start thinking, asking ourselves questions. What am I doing? What can I do? How can I do? When you start asking yourselves where you fit on this circle of, 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 of our planet, then you'll find a place for you to direct your energy and, and, and your support and even uh, anything that you have to give back to the environment. Katie, as you know, travel for me doesn't always go according to plan. Oh, I am well aware. I have heard enough stories on this podcast to know that mishaps can happen when anyone travels. Absolutely. And when they do, you need travel insurance. And I couldn't recommend World Nomads more as your go-to. Travel insurance also protects the communities you visit. Some countries' medical systems have limited services and capability. World Nomads helps ensure that you don't become a burden on the local people and economy if you need medical help. Alpaca pals, you know this is music to my ears. World Nomads policies are simple and flexible. They cover over 150 adventure activities, including higher risk activities like scuba diving and trekking. Benefits limit, conditions and exclusions apply. Be sure to read your policy wording. Learn more and get your travel insurance quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes. I've noticed like people will often say, that they feel that they can't have an impact, that they don't have the ability to have impact because they're just one person and they feel too small. And I think people really underestimate the power of conversation. And like you were saying, the power of even small donations. I know people often think like, oh, what's the point in donating five or $10? But really, like if more people do that, it adds up to a lot. So I think like people need to give themselves more credit for the little bit of um, contribution that they are able to make. Absolutely. And I think I would want to bring in the analogy I had one day when I was in the bush. I thought of conservation as, as a human body. If you think about the human body, all functions, all parts of the body has to be functioning to you to say like you're a healthy human body or you are a healthy human being. The eyes have to do their job, the nose has to do its job, the skin has to do its job. Think about the, the other things we don't see. You know, think about the veins in the, you know, pushing the blood inside our body, we don't see it. Think about the heart pumping the blood there, we don't see it. Think about the intestines doing their job so quietly hidden inside the, bo the body that we don't see it, but the functions they are playing is so crucial for the well-being of this human, you know. And now think about conservation. It's so diverse. 
conservation is so diverse that we have different continents in this in this world that have different species that have different ecosystems that need unique expertise and protection and so if the face because it looks good what to say is the only organ of the body that is uh, or the nose for instance was the only organ in the body that is so important or the eyes simply because they see it would be so biased because the blood inside the body is being transported by the veins and other vessels that are so crucial as well. So when you are doing something for the planet, it is very easy to think that the rangers and the people calling themselves conservationists are the most important people. They are not. Because that thing you do waking up in your house, deciding that I'm not going to throw this plastic away, is just being like the intestines. No one might see you, no one might notice you. Even if you decide to give $5 a month or $10 a month, no one will see your bank account getting debited for that. But you're being the intestines. You're playing your role in a very indirect way, but people are saying, hey, looking at the face and saying this, you know, you, this, you look so good, but they don't realize there's, there's something that inside of you that is working. So there's no effort done genuinely for the planet that is so small because the reverse is true the collective aspects of our negligence is what is adding up to the climatic chaos that we are seeing so no one should ever feel small it's only that we have we've made a conservation like a career which is something that i think um, we need to revisit because it should be about everyone it's just for all of us everyone is important and what you do counts. Just do something. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about tourism. Much of Kenya's tourism is centered around safaris and conservation. And I've actually seen within the tourism community that sometimes there's debate around the ethics of safaris. I've read sort of both sides. On the one side, I've read that responsible safari tourism is really crucial to animal protection and survival, and that it can do a really good job of improving the economy of local communities. So I wanted to ask what your thoughts are on tourists participating in safaris. I think uh, tourism plays a very crucial role, especially during these COVID times. You've seen how conservation organizations have suffered for lack of tourism. The revenues that is collected through tourism is what is very crucial for uh, the operations cost of these conservation areas or conservancies in national parks. Tourism, for instance, in Kenya employs around 300,000 people directly. Indirectly, we're talking of thousands and thousands of people, which trickles down to other aspects of our economy. Uh, I think as we are moving forward, it is now about having conversations about the impacts that we are having, especially tourism is having on species and conservation areas that, that people choose to visit or other elements of tourism that goes around. It is just having conversations about how can we minimize the impact? How can we do better? Tourism is very integral and I think that said, I think uh, we need to revisit in certain areas, especially in our tourism, but this is an ongoing conversation. I think we can't change things in, in one year's time. We need just to continue having these conversations and educating ourselves, educating our travelers, our tourists, how 
how possibly, and even when people choose to travel, then they will start choosing people who have already accepted having these conversations so that we can improve the well-being of our planet. And do you have tips for how tourists can choose the right safari, a safari that's responsible and that's doing good work? Are there certain things that tourists should look for when they're choosing a safari or another type of tourism experience in Kenya? Absolutely, yeah. I think um, we have an industrious mindset. In anywhere we will go, we will have people who are just there for what they're getting, but what not they're giving back to, to the community or the society or to conservation areas. So you choose safaris that are oriented towards even especially awakening you as a person to realize the beauty of our planet and how you can be able to improve even where you come from. Because it's no longer now going to be vacations and just seeing animals for fun and taking selfies with elephants that I'm here in Africa. It is about how many elephants do we have left? What is happening to them? What can we? So it is about choosing where you can have such conversations that will help us to protect these species. It is also choosing to visit areas where you are directly impacting the protection of species. Just imagine getting on a safari knowing that the, the, the entrance fees that you're paying for that pack is helping keep, for instance, species like rhinos safe and elephants safe. When, when you research and analyze and then you're able to know that even a portion of what you're paying for, let's say a trip, when you're sending for a trip, maybe a portion of that even goes towards making sure that we protect these species and we keep them safe. I think these are some of the things, but also avoid the expectations that you come here and you want to go outside, pet animals, you know, cuddle them. I think we are, it's, it's been a conversation two days where we had a client in, the, in one of the famous results in Masai Mara. He was playing with a, with a leopard. Like the leopard comes to the car and you start playing with it, your camera and tossing. It's like, this is not even fair for the animal itself. So we just need to have ethical ways, um, respect for the animals, have you know, companies that respect the well-being of these animals, they, are, they respect all the rules and that are there for the parks and, and try to stick within the lines. As much as it is hard and sometimes people will break rules, but at least you'll be able to make sure that at least even when you're traveling, your impact is low. And that's what we, we try to do. We try to offer a bit of chill safaris where even your carbon footprint, you know, you're trying to minimize it instead of driving from all over the country, trying to see all the things in one place, but you want to chill and enjoy the beauty of these animals. So it's a conversation that is ongoing. I would say we are not there yet, but we need to have these conversations as we move forward. I really like your emphasis on like using a safari as a, a means to learn and be educated rather than just taking selfies with animals. Um, and I also wanted to touch on that point you made about the leopard because I listened to your episode with Amanda Kendall on the Thoughtful Travel podcast and you had talked about a situation where there was, I forget what kind of animal it was, but you were saying the animal, people could interact more with this animal because it needed more help from humans. Um, which I thought was interesting because in general people say, oh, you should only observe. You should only ever observe an animal and not interact with it. And so I thought that was such an interesting example because it really pointed to like the fact that there is a bit of nuance in terms of when it's appropriate to interact or be close with an animal. Could you talk a bit about that example? 
Yes, uh, I think on special occasions, we need to highlight the fact that people will try to protect what they have affinity to, what they love and what they appreciate. And in some very regulated aspects, we need to have places where people can have close encounters, well-regulated, to make sure that we introduce the subjects of some of these especially creatures to people's hearts. I think watching documentaries, watching people look, that look after these animals and protect them draws us close to our hearts. But think about the experience of getting even as closer as possible. So, for instance, we, you know, Pegeta, where I used to work before, we have a blind black rhino who's hope of survival in the wild was no longer there, especially when he became blind because he would be killed by other animals. And Alpegeta decided to make him an ambassador animal where to complement his essence of loneliness, he would be introduced to people and ambassador for other rhinos. And people can go uh, meet him, interact with him. If you're on a safari with me and I tell you that's a rhino and you can never drive close to them, you just see them as the distant animals. But the moment you go and meet him, for instance, he's very charming, very lovely, and you are able even to see the horn we are talking about and even lay your hand on it. Uh, and then you realize that such a beautiful animal has to die for its horns because someone else thinks uh, it's a cure for cancer or it's, it's an aphrodisiac to make them viral or whatever reasons people kill these rhinos for. It goes to your heart. It sinks into your heart. You can't really come and interact with him and fail to love him for whom he is. And this draws people now to the understanding that these animals deserve our protection. So I do not encourage this, but in special instances where we have like an orphaned elephant, we have an orphaned uh, rhino, we have an orphaned animal that can be used to educate people. It's something that we can take away. Because at the expense is we are losing elephants and rhinos every single day. But think about if we have one rhino, even where the community kids can come and visit and say like, look, this is a rhino. They're very close to it. These animals are dying. You use it as an education. You people are able to be educated about the other animals that are free roaming in the world. Then it's equally important. It's just about the balance because then we it ends up being now we don't know where to draw the line. So it is just about having conversations and the logic behind the reasons of doing this. That's, yeah, that's a really good, good explanation. I think it's hard sometimes to like know if an animal is being exploited or not. So do you have any tips on how a tourist can figure out whether it's a situation that is actually beneficial, like for conservation and for the animal, or whether it's a more exploitative situation? Unfortunately, some of it is disguised that you don't realize it's what it is always happening. But if you end up seeing, going to a place where you see the animal is trapped, you see the well-being of the animal is not of great concern, you, there is always where you can see the dots are not connecting. Even from a very conscious level of being a human, you can always tell something is not adding up. But if you find an animal is given the freedom, the animal is given the rights, when it's not happy, you, you just have to leave it. Um, and even if sometimes you have to kind of pay to do some stuff, especially with these animals, you know, you, you can kind of tell sometimes it's being exploited. So that's why I'm saying it's so hard to draw the line, especially in some areas where they 
they kind of bait the animals and feed them, then eventually like kill them for profit and, and stuff like that. So you need to do a proper research, uh, I would say, because I come from Kenya. The way we do it here is so different from other African countries where people have the right to own wildlife. So in Kenya, it's very regulated. I will speak about Kenya. You can't have this particular animal without having a permission from the government uh, body that oversells the well-being of these animals. And I think that's why Kenya has been able to do so well, even in conservation. The fact that we have not lost a single rhino last year to poaching is we have a government body that oversights the well-being of these animals. You need to have a special permit. And there's a special reason why that animal has to be there. Maybe it's blind, it's been injured, it was orphaned or something like that. So you need to have a special permission from the government for the Kenya Wildlife Service for you to do something like that, which makes it very regulated. Uh, the tourist who was seen, you know, petting the, 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 the world leopard was expelled because that is not the way. That's not what we are trying to, the message we are trying to send. So... We, we're doing well, I would say, in Kenya, because we are, we are able to keep that in check and make sure that animals are not exploited, especially for, for profit. That's really good. So I know you've started your own philanthropic-based tour company called Jamimwenda Expeditions. Could you tell us about why you started your own company and the impact that you're hoping to make with the tours that you're offering? Yes, I decided to start my travel company because when I was a boy, Mount Kenya is very touristic, so tourists would pass by and give us biscuits and tips and small gifts, which made me think of being a, uh, in, in the tourism industry since I was very young, and I decided that I need to know how to speak good English so that I can communicate. The emotional toll that this career came with, um, I really got to a point where I felt like I needed some change, to kind of change some years in, in my life, because all I used to do was talk about extinction, uh, talk about the last two northern white rhinos, talk about how sad it was being there. And I felt like at some point I needed to kind of change some careers and even work for a different distance where I'm not basically looking after them every day. So I revisited my childhood dream and I have started now my expeditions company. I've been doing safaris when I've been working as a, as a ranger when I'm free. And I decided now it's time to start this dream. And what I am, what I have seen is a gap is um, having tours and safaris companies that are are so much meant to inspire people, educate people, and help people connect to the planet. Because what we sell mostly is destinations. People want to come and go to Masai Mara, which is because of the migration, and then you have people flocking in there, and people want to go to the beaches and stuff. People have a checklist, so you know, travel companies will give you a checklist. You when you go to Africa, you might see a leopard, you might see a lion, and people are rushing to go see the leopard, and then they want to go see the elephant, and then they want to go see the lion killing, and then that people are rushing back and forth and trying to to tick off animals and and mark them off, and we have seen this and that, and take selfies, and, which is good, which is which is why people pay to do it. But we have in changing times where when we travel, we kind of need to sit down and, and, and feel the presence of nature. We just need, don't need to take a book with you to check off the animals. You just need to go out in the bush and, and drive around with your driver guide and see what the bush brings for you. Maybe it's going to give you a squirrel. A squirrel is so small, but we have this idea that we must see an elephant, we must see a lion, which is good, but 
every species is, is important. It's crucial for the ecosystem. We need to give so much attention to the smaller antelopes as we are giving to big animals as well. And um, having a chill experience where you just sit down and 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 enjoy elephants, being elephants in the African savanna, soaking in the beauty of your magnificent and their power, learning about how they live. So even naming them, giving them your, your names that you love and, and bonding with them as a special beings that deserve our attention is the kind of uh, notion that I have for my expeditions company. We are also, at the end of the day, people feel good because... Uh, they're also giving back because the areas we visit are areas that I also like have affinity with. I will also be encouraging people to adopt animals. I will be encouraging people to even name animals uh, as a way of you know helping and, and supporting conservation, uh, community visits and stuff like that that add a lot of value to to uh, the tourism aspects in Kenya. So I decided to have this and this is what you're trying to offer, a chill uh, quiet but more immersive travel experience in, in Kenya and also uh, outside uh, Kenya in other countries as well that we have partners. There's sort of like a trending term in travel um, that people use slow travel, which is this idea, sort of what you're describing, that you go to a place and actually like travel very slowly and take the time to really get to know um, the people or the animals or the culture. And I really love that you're taking that approach with your company. The show is really about what it means to be a responsible traveler and hearing about your tour company it sounds like you're focusing on promoting this approach to tourism um, so on that note I wanted to ask what you would say responsible tourism means to you and how can tourists visiting Kenya practice responsible tourism yeah I think in very basic language because I I, I think when it becomes so scholarly we people don't really understand what we mean. So we avoid having very technical terms that people don't really relate to. But in very easy language, I think responsible tourism is knowing where you're going to, why you're going to, what is the impact that you're likely to create. Is it positive or negative when you choose to visit that place? And then if I choose to go and travel this place, like at the end of that trip, for instance, what can I engage myself with? What can I say that I have really directly or indirectly impacted to this place? So responsible tourism is looking at all aspects of the place that you're going to visit. How you as a person or as a group, as an individual, how you're going to maybe even leave that place better. And that's why I think consciously we need to have these conversations in our mind. Like now, it's time we start thinking about where we are traveling and what we are doing when we travel and how it is helping the planet, how it is helping the survival of species. For instance, people come to East Africa for the rhinos, the elephants, the, the lions, the big five, you know, name them. But how am I, how will I live this when I travel, including also the communities, uh, the culture aspect of it when you leave it? You, you just want to go and soak in the beauty of the culture of these people, but you don't want to try to go and exploit. And so it's, it's just so diverse because it's so unique because the problems with us humans, we are so flexible in the way we see and we do things. And it always becomes complex when we try to analyze one aspect or the other. So that's what I would describe as um, responsible tourism. 
Mm-hmm. It's sort of like using your travels as an opportunity to have a positive impact on the place that you visit. Well, thank you so much, James. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and learning from you. Do you want to tell everyone where they can find you? I'm in social medias. I'm on LinkedIn as James Mwenda. I'm on Instagram. People can visit my expeditions company website, which is www.jemoexpeditions.com. And uh, I can see some some of them hopping on a safari and taking them around soon. <laughs> You've convinced me. Like, I haven't been to Kenya and I've always wanted to go. And so now you can expect to see me on a tour in the future because I really want to come. <laughs> I'm, I'm really happy that from this conversation, you feel that you want to come and visit. You're so much welcome. We are the young people. We need to find solutions to some of the problems that are affecting our planet. And we are the change makers, you know. That's the whole essence of my safari company. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and produced by Katie Lohr. Do you want to support this podcast? If so, there are a few ways that you can. You can leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bag safely and soon. Bye.